Thought Leadership from PwC. I think now it's just very much um, when you're proving you want to focus on these important aspects in this, the changing landscape. I think that would, you know, make sure you you are most well equipped for when the time comes when all of this is implemented. I think it's a key issue, right? These internal stakeholders and understanding who who's responsible. There's a whole variety of stakeholders that you need to get together and inform. And more and more we see that it's not just tax or legal or assurance or reporting mm-hmm. or finance, but it's a much broader topic. And depending on the exact uh, question, uh, you need to assemble together. And the larger the organization, the sort of the bigger the challenge, it seems, because... Uh, there's so many stakeholders and it's difficult to find the data and the people that are really involved. Hello. Today we're continuing our CSRD Spotlight series, focused on giving you the latest that you need to know about the European Union's sustainability reporting rules. This is PwC's accounting podcast. I'm Heather Horn. And thanks so much for joining us today. Listeners familiar with CSRD know that the directive does not actually require change behavior on the part of companies. It merely requires new disclosures. However, there are a number of other regulatory actions, both in the EU and in other jurisdictions around the world, that will, in fact, mandate changes in behavior or provide financial incentives or penalties to do so. To take a stock of the current landscape of EU regulations, we've invited Neil Smaller, partner in PwC's Netherlands Energy Transition and Sustainable Energy Practice, as well as Linda Thonen, a corporate lawyer and PwC Netherlands partner who advises on corporate governance to the podcast. Linda's perspective as an attorney also provides some insight into questions around director liability that companies are facing as they process the additional disclosure requirements of the CSRD. With that, here's my conversation with Niels and Linda. Niels, Linda, welcome to the podcast. So nice to have you here and to have an opportunity to hear your perspectives. However, before we get into the actual podcast itself, I thought it'd be just helpful for you to share a little bit about your backgrounds with the audience and a little bit about what you're working on. So, Niels, I'll go to you first. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having us. Uh, it's, a good, it's a great pleasure to be here. Um, I, I'm a partner in the, in the Dutch tax practice, um, and I, I focus primarily on sustainability and tax. Um, and in that capacity, I also run our EU uh, Green Deal Center of Excellence, uh, which is a global initiative, and we try to follow the developments uh, within the Green Deal. All right, so definitely lots of topics there for our audience and for the audience's benefit. We were also talking about OECD before the podcast, but we will not be covering that here, but maybe in a follow-on. So, and Linda? Yeah, hey, nice to meet you, and thanks for having me too. Um, So my background is a corporate lawyer. Um, I joined PwC as a partner in the legal department. Um, I focus on a lot of governance issues and also with an angle to sustainability because that's very much a current discussion. 
Yes, and we've been getting a lot of governance discussions. So I'll also let our audience know we're going to get into some of that later. So hopefully some of the questions that have been bubbling up will be answered. So this podcast then is being recorded as part of a whole series on CSRD. And we've covered a lot of these topics in different formats and in different venues previously. But I also think it's helpful for the audience to just sort of reset perspective and sort of remind everyone when we talk about the Green Deal why we had the Green Deal and and what its overall purpose is. And then we'll go through some of the major pieces of legislation coming from that. But I think, Niels, just to rewind a little bit and remind us how we got here would be helpful. So indeed, uh, the EU Green Deal um, dates back from 2019, eh, where the European Commission effectively set uh, a roadmap to become net zero uh, in, in 2050 uh, or 2045. Uh, there's a bit of the debate there. Um, and in order to uh, achieve that, they, they have set a regulatory framework, which is the Fit for 55 package. And within that package, there's a whole raft of uh, topics, uh, tax-related, regulatory. Uh, th there's, there's lots out there. And uh, th that all needs to steer that goal and, and make sure that we get carbon effectively out of the system. Um, and, well, at this moment, you see that one after the other, these... Um, Proposals are being uh, converted into actual legislation. Uh, actual payments need to be made. Uh, there's compliance to be uh, taken care of. So I think it's a very interesting time at the moment. It, that is an understatement. I think seeing how quickly all of this is moving. But before we get into the details, I do one thing that I find interesting. So this happened in 2019. And then obviously we had COVID in 2020 right after. So did we see an impact in terms of timeline from that? Or do you think it's just meant things have moved faster as, as we've gotten out of COVID? Well, I, th I think Ed, there's there's quite a few different topics within the EU Green Deal. Some of them have been moving quicker, like CBAM. We'll yeah. talk about that in a minute. Yes. Some of them ha have been rather slow, like the Energy Tax Directive, uh, which is still uh, on the shelf, effectively. We're still waiting for a proposal. Uh, and we're in a big need of a good proposal because our energy tax laws around Europe are very outdated. Um, so some parts are moving quick, others aren't. Uh, but overall, I think uh, it, it, they had a remarkable pace uh, if you compare other European legislation, which sometimes takes years to, uh, to negotiate. I think they did quite a good job in getting sort of important uh, blocks out there like like CSRD as well right it's also part of the bigger green deal uh, plan right well and we've been talking also about the taxonomy and just when you look at the level of detail and the thought that's gone into CSRD and taxonomy and now today we'll talk about some of the other ones and you mentioned CBAM and that's one we've talked about before but can you just remind people what that is and we hit a big milestone with that as well we did, we did. Just just uh, earlier this month, eh, the, the, the transitional period started. So CBAM is the Carbon Border Adjustment Mechanism, and effectively it means that whatever uh, goods you bring into the EU that are on the CBAM list, eh, and that's, that's steel, fertilizer, aluminum, a lot of base materials that, that would cause a lot of emissions, if you bring them into the EU, uh, you need to report on those in the transitional period, but after 26, you will need to pay the same price as under our ETS system. So we have an emission trading system, uh, which will uh, ha have a, a price per ton CO2 emitted for a certain product. You will pay the same price if you bring in the good as 
if you would have produced it within Europe. So it's a measure to level the playing field with other countries. Um, and well, <laughs> it's effective as of 1 October. So many of our clients are trying to prepare now to at least report. Um, and after that, obviously, there's a payment obligation. And when you talk about the fact that that price will be set based on the ETS price, then ultimately, is this going to become one market or will there continue to be the active trading within the EU and then people importing will just be subject to that price? Yeah, so, so ETS, the ETS market is, is effectively the EU. So all 27 member states have the same price. Some member states like, like the Netherlands have a top up price even on top of ETS. Uh, but generally, there's one price within the European Union, and whatever you bring in, if you're on the list, would sort of, at least for the emission content, would pay the same price. And then I understand that they may be expanding the list of goods that are subject to the uh, yeah. C-band. Yeah, so the commission is, has already announced that this is the sort of starting point and that they are all already looking into other sectors to to extend the, the number of products that will be subject to CBAM. Um, uh, primarily chemical products are have been on the list, have been taken off the list. I think you can guess that they will come back onto the list somewhere in, in due course. Um, but that's maybe in 27, 28. Um, and I think another important element there is uh, under our ETS system, uh, emitters have free rights. So a lot of our heavy industry still has free rights. Mm -hmm. Those are taken out of the market and CBAM will gradually phase in. So there is a, huh, th th those two will, will be linked, um, eventually uh, leading to no free emission rights in 2034, right? So 2034, all free rights are out and CBAM is fully implemented. So you pay the full price. And how then is this going to work? So if I'm a company that maybe is in one of these industries in another country that also has emissions charges and maybe I'm still getting free rights there and those are going away. Is there going to be any type of recognition given for that or is there a possibility they would wind up basically paying twice? No, so so, so the, the, the CBAM system uh, allows for a credit if you already paid uh, a comparable CO2 price. Uh, they have... They haven't been very specific on what is a qualifying price. Hey, we're in the transitional phase, so there's no price consequence. Right. But uh, it's widely expected that somewhere next year or at least well before 26, we'll know which countries qualify and what system qualifies. And it could be uh, a carbon tax or uh, a carbon levy or what have you, as long as it's paid towards the carbon content of the product coming in. And so then the ultimate objective here is to overall force lower emissions, exactly. not just in the EU, though, but then worldwide, because you're not going to want to pay this yeah. tax. Yeah, and, and there's an interesting link between this system and Pillar 2. Uh, Pillar 2 is a minimum tax for all corporations of 15%. You see that CBAM has somewhat of a similar effect because you already see other jurisdictions saying, hey, if, if my producer needs to pay at the border coming into the EU... Oh, why not levy it myself? Mm -hmm. uh, so there's various countries that are either increasing their carbon taxes or introducing carbon taxes. Yeah, and that was actually partly why I was asking the question about if there was a credit received, because it does would make sense that then the other countries don't want all that money flowing to the EU. Exactly, exactly. So that that is exactly what is happening at the moment. And is there a particular purpose then that those funds will be used for? Does, do they get reinvested in 
green or is it go to like a more general type of fund? No, the, the idea is indeed that they are reinvested into uh, sort of uh, um, making our industry more sustainable. And there's some other funds within the green deal uh, that could be uh, could be eligible then. All right. Well, so that's very helpful uh, background on CBAM and the ETS system. And one thing that's come up recently that we've actually started getting questions about is the fact that this has, um, it, as you said, they're continuing to consider expansion, but it now is going to include maritime transportation starting January 1, 2024. And we are definitely getting a lot of questions about that. So can you provide some perspective of what that is, what that means and who it applies to? Yeah. Yes. So at the moment, ETS applies only to sort of basic industry, to put it in short. Uh, but the commission has, has has seen that some sectors haven't haven't had any form of carbon pricing. So that's why they added the maritime industry to the ETS system. So it will have its own ETS system and you will need to buy emission rights for uh, the vessel you, you fly into the, uh, into the EU. Uh, these are uh, vessels over 5,000 gross ton. Um, and, and, and there's going to be quite a cost for these vessels uh, going forward. Um, and, well, indeed, it applies as of 1 January. So, yeah, that's indeed the question we get a lot uh, because it's a new system. So the whole trading needs to be set up, you need to be compliant. So a lot of ship owners are, well, actually getting ready now. Um, and that's actually only the first step because um, in 27. Uh, also, the built-up environment uh, so it will, will also be part of a emission trading system, their own emission trading system. Um, and, and you can expect that uh, also the pricing will go up. Uh, so the phase-in of the maritime shipping is first 40%, but will gradually increase to 100% uh, rights you need to buy. So will there be more emissions credits created or no, this is back to your point, they're actually going away. So you're going to have less and then it will truly be a free market for emissions. Yeah, although although the, the maritime system is separate from the indus- industrial uh, system. So so they have their own trading system, but it works uh, more or less the same as, as, as the current ETS system, which has been around for 20 years. So that's helpful. There's a lot of knowledge on that. You just get new market participants now that are confronted with it, so they all need to well uh, get get acquainted with the system. And so we're doing a lot of trainings for clients and and trying to set up uh, their 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 trading effectively because they need to buy these rights. And would are the prices expected to be the same in the two systems if they're separate or at least relatively close? Yeah, they're they're separate because they relate to to uh, a different activity. Uh, but but overall, if you sort of compare them, they, they try to level that out. And then this is not just for freight. This is passengers yep. or otherwise. It's just it's the size of It's cargo and passenger ships. It's just the gross tonnage of the ship that, that makes you qualify or not. And then this is uh, will also be extended to offshore vessels later on, uh, which is, well, it, it's part of the, this is the phased approach eh, that every time we'll see new, uh, carbon pricing coming in and uh, effectively that is what sort of the bigger picture is that every ton of carbon emitted in the EU will get a price. And this includes, so if I was shipping from the EU as well uh, and using ships, would I also be playing or only? Yeah, so so in? if it's intra-EU, you pay 100% and if it's a voyage which is just EU to an, uh, to, to an outside EU location, you paid 50%. 
I so, see. But, but once you get into EU port, you, you need to pay either 50 or 100%. Of if you're buying goods from the EU or shipping goods into the EU, you're going to see an impact from this, even if you're not the one who's actually paying. Exactly. You need to price this in. And this is this is what we also call the hidden cost of carbon, huh, where it, there's, there's going to be parts of your value chain that will increase in price because of carbon pricing. Um, and and it, well, it, I think it's very helpful to sort of be aware of that and make sure that you know where the carbon sits, I, even if it's a third-party supplier like a ship, a shipping right. company or transportation company, because they will all start to pay more for their emissions. Right, and this, like we said, this is in only a few months that we'll start to see this. So definitely something for companies to be paying attention to. And yep. again, even from a budget and otherwise perspective, exactly. you don't want to miss this. So, um, and then another topic that we've previously talked about and that we're starting again to get more questions on is the foreign subsidies regulation. And in particular, I think, you know, in the U S we've seen a huge amount of investment following the inflation reduction act and government subsidies coming from that and, and otherwise, and now with the foreign subsidies regulation, you know the in, the intent is to sort of again level the playing field and say if you're getting the benefit of those subsidies, then you are going to have to um, consider those if if you're doing public procurement or a type of transaction. So, what reaction are you seeing, and what impact from this? And maybe you can give even a more fulsome explanation than yeah. I just did. No, I think I think that's that's the gist of it. And and the interesting thing about the foreign subsidy regulation is that it is now a reporting obligation, right? So there's a lot of work to be done. Um, what what isn't clear is how it relates to the Green Deal industrial plan. Because uh, just after foreign subsidy regulation came in, we had the Green Deal Industrial Plan, which is effectively a response to the IRA. So Europe also, uh, or the EU, also introduced its own incentives, for example, for hydrogen and mm -hmm. other sort of uh, sustainable practices. So I'd, I think there the judge is still out how those relate to each other, because we are also supporting, for example, hydrogen projects. The hydrogen bank is coming in now. We expect uh, more clarity there in, in a few weeks' time. Uh, and that will support large-scale hydrogen production, for example. But also battery storage is getting more and more support from the EU. So in, in a way, you can ask yourself, so how does that relate to the uh, foreign subsidy regulation and uh, other jurisdictions? And do you have an answer to the question or no? Well, I mean, the, 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 I think, I think the, the question is still... Uh, what what will happen with uh, the reported information on the foreign subsidy regulation. And I think if you start to sort of look at the level playing field, if for a certain activity uh, Europe also provides a similar subsidy, uh, you can ask yourself, is it then still uh, not a level playing field? And would the FSR kick in anyways? Oh. Uh, so because if we, we give yes. a similar subsidy, what are we complaining about? Yeah, that's a good point. So, but no answer to that question yet. No, not yet, because it's all fairly new and, and the, 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 the subsidies on hydrogen, has so particularly the hydrogen bank, they're all coming in now. So we'll know a bit better what the levels are and how much more interesting the uh, Inflation Reduction Act is. And are you seeing investment following the Green Deal Industrial Plan? Or again, it's too soon to really tell? Yeah, I mean, there is a lot of interest and I think the... The big announcement on how the hydrogen bank will work will come in a few weeks. It's somewhat slower than other topics, I think, and uh, and I think the EU needs to speed up. 
because the IRA has been around right. for a while. I also hear that in actually applying for the IRA, it can take a while and it's not all that clear as people tend to think. Um, but overall, I think the EU needs to speed up. And um, well, they're, they're in a few weeks' time, we'll know more probably. Yeah, well, and it's interesting. I did a podcast of a few weeks ago with one of um, our colleagues in the US, Matt Haskins, and he was talking about some aspects of the IRA where there are you know, many, many more applications than there are funds. That's not across the board, but in some cases. So it is interesting to see how these are actually becoming operationalized. Yeah, yeah and that's one of the things that uh, I hear also more with clients that the IRA is sort of open-ended. And if you sort of do the maths on that, how much it would potentially cost the, the U.S. taxpayer, it's 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 big numbers. So uh, you can also wonder, is it, is it sustainable in terms of will that be around forever? Yeah, I mean, the other question that after I did the podcast previously on the foreign subsidies regulation interested me is, are we then expecting to see where companies actually are not applying for all these sort of foreign aid? Because, um, you know, from the EU's perspective, it is foreign aid. Is that the intent or is it that they're bringing really their investment into the EU? So so these, these subsidies, for example, had the hydrogen bank again, that, that is a subsidy for uh, either producing here, yeah. but there's also a program for importing green hydrogen. So that could be partially production elsewhere and shipping it into the EU. Uh, because uh, in the end for hydrogen, the, 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 the basic ingredient is cheap renewables, uh, abundant cheap renewables. And one thing we don't have in Europe is abundant cheap renewables. And there's other countries that have way lower uh, levelized cost of energy. Mm-hmm. So you can you can sort of see that you produce it there, ship it in, and then there for the shipping in and the dehydrogenation process, there will be a subsidy. Yeah, so, so you're so, going to have to pay your uh, emissions taxes on that shipping when you ship it in. But uh, yeah, that's a good one. Uh, if you, if you don't you don't have to pay if you use methanol, right? So green oh, methanol. Okay, so so but it it's it's a valid question, and yeah. and and again, look at your entire value chain. Right. And don't forget about emissions while transporting hydrogen, for example, or whatever you bring in. Right. Because transportation will also be caught. Yeah. Do you see, and then we're going to shift to some of how managing all of this, but just a couple more questions. Do you see then as companies are um, either already started their taxonomy reporting or beginning to, and then you have all of this other regulation, are you starting to see as you're talking to companies that they are shifting their strategic focus or is it still too premature to see any real change like that? I think for new investments. So, so if you look at, for example, the chemical industry or, or uh, larger producers of, of, of certain base materials, I think they are very much aware of these developments. And uh, if you spend more than a billion on a certain asset, you really want to make sure you get the best deal. Yes, yes. And there you see that the IRA has sparked quite a lot of investment in the US. Uh, so, so yeah, these, these subsidy schemes do make a difference. And, and, and obviously pricing as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it, I think in the end, if you look at the business case for, for many companies we serve, it, it's the combination of the subsidies available, the, the pricing, and, and sometimes also of obviously the regulatory environment. Uh, uh, operating a coal-fired plant here is, is just forbidden by 2030, right? So uh, whether you like it or not, it's going gonna, it's gonna to close down. Right. So I think you need to take that mix into consideration before you invest. And um, I think most clients are aware of that. 
So then, Niels, if we just think about all of these pieces together, and we've we've started to touch on this, but there are all of these individual decisions that are impacting investment, that are impacting manufacturing, that are impacting how people, where people are deciding to operate or not. And so with all of that, it seems like it they if a company is trying to make a decision about what to do and where to operate and where to focus. And even back to my last question about where they are focusing, do they have the information to do that or how are they considering all these quote hidden costs? Yes. So I think that that's a great question. And I think where, where, where in the end uh, it all boils down to is that you really need to understand very thoroughly where the carbon sits in your both your supply chain, but also in the product, eh, the whole production you do yourselves and then go out to the, the customer uh, because one piece after the other that will be priced in. And and you see that now coming with eh, CBAM is a form of carbon pricing, obviously. Uh, you see that extending to other countries. You see our energy tax laws changing. So carbon is getting more and more expensive. So um, by having data on that and having being able to report on that, uh, you can take b- better management decisions, um, but under the CSRD, equally so, you need the information mm-hmm. anyways, right? You need to show the world how much carbon is involved in your supply chain. So so I think it, it all uh, really screams for a good strategy around data and, and making sure you capture uh, what you do and, and how much carbon is involved. Because And then, obviously, um, decision-making is easier because uh, if you know... A certain part of your process uh, runs an X, X, X amount ton of CO2. Uh, you can put a price on that, and then you can sort of make an abatement curve and say, "Hey, I'll, I'll take out the carbon. That will save me an X amount of money." And on the other hand, there might be subsidies to support that. So that's how you sort of build business cases around uh, greening your uh, your value chain. It's interesting at this point, because early on, when we were first having some of these conversations about GHG reporting, there was a big focus on how are you going to reduce, abate, what changes are you going to make? And then I think more recently, as companies have gotten into just the nuts and bolts of do they how to do GHG reporting, that it's almost like that purpose has been lost. And it's more, do I have the data, how I'm going to be able to do it? scope three is so difficult. And, and what you're saying is, yes, there is this compliance aspect that you need to report your GHG information, but a company that's smart about managing all that information and actually gets ahead of where its major sources of carbon are in its supply chain. And otherwise, those are the ones that are going to be able to take a strategic advantage here. Exactly, exactly. Then you can make educated uh, decisions on where to go first. Huh? There may be a country that is very expensive in terms of carbon pricing and may offer a subsidy this year maybe not next year so so in order to have management information at the right level i think it's really important to understand the whole supply chain and understand all of the carbon that's in there and then you can sort of decide where to spend your dollars right you can only spend them once so uh comparing that uh, is is really important and i think that's something where uh, ad improvement is is possible because a lot of a lot of companies see it as a compliance exercise and they report here's my GHG emissions and uh, good luck with it. 
uh, and you could sort of take that data and say, oh, by the way, I can use that and mm -hmm. sort of uh, make more uh, better decisions on uh, on more sustainable supply chains. So one of the things we hear from companies that are, I'll use the word, frustrated with GHG reporting, particularly in scope three, is just the there's a lot of estimation involved. It's hard to get your hands around your supply chain and otherwise. But I think what you're saying is you have to get past those pieces of it do your best to identify your supply chain and those big sources and then start to act on that information. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and then, and, and maybe then back to, to CBAM where we discussed yeah. previously had. So one of the big uh, challenges for clients at the moment is how to calculate and how to sort of assess this carbon content of the products. And uh, <laughs> the, 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 the short answer is if you don't do it, the commission will do it for you. And as of 26, there will be default values and, those will be the worst value we can find in the EU. So it will probably give you a very expensive answer. So I think it also makes sense to invest a bit in, in trying to really understand where these emissions are and, and how much they are. So do you see any companies doing this well now or not not yet? Uh, yeah, yeah, certainly. So there, there's definitely companies that are uh, ahead of the curve, so to speak, and have a really proper data management system in place to capture all of these carbon emissions. But but it is still difficult, especially if you, the further you go down the supply chain, especially if they're third parties, you need to ask a third party to bring on, uh, to, to supply these carbon data. And well, that's also a legal issue, right? Uh, you can't force them. So mm -hmm. also in your contracting, as of now, I would say, get the obligation in there that they show the carbon content of what you buy from them. Because otherwise, yeah, how do you get the information from somebody completely uh, yeah, third party, right? That's completely removed from you. So Niels, obviously we've been talking about carbon and I do want to come back to it because I think there is increasing focus. And I, I do think this point that this is not just compliance we've made, but I think some of the what you've talked about here has really brought that home in terms of emphasizing it. But with all of that said, I know obviously the Green Deal is much broader. It is not just carbon, even the ESRS says there's 12 of them, and we've really only been talking about one. So are there any of the other, I'll use the ESRS as for example, or any other legislation coming out of the Green Deal that has sort of similar impact to some of what we've been talking about from a carbon perspective? Yeah, yeah, no, no, you, you, that that's a really good point. Uh, so, so carbon is is one of the key drivers, and there we have CBAM, ETS. Uh, but I think we we discussed those. Um, and there's obviously subsidies uh, also within the Green Deal. Mm -hmm. But what is also in the Green Deal is 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 a lot of uh, regulatory uh, legislation around extended producer liabilities and will uh, really shifting the 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 onus of being more uh, sustainable to the producer. Right, so the producer and the and uh, uh, the, the 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 parties that actually uh, uh, supply the goods mm -hmm. to the to to the general public, they get more and more responsibilities. So it's not so much a tax, uh, but it, it, there's a lot of the, there's a lot of additional legislation they need to take care of, including uh, taking uh, packaging back. Uh, uh, there's cer certain plastic levies. So there's a whole raft of things then operating within the EU, you need to think about. And those are applicable to companies that are actually manufacturing things in the EU or also importing into the EU? If, yeah, if you supply to EU customers, that would be applicable. So it could be that you produce elsewhere and supply into the EU. 
Uh, but uh, obviously, if you produce here and supply to customers, uh, you could you could also fall uh, within the scope of these rules. And then, Linda, I know you're also talking to companies about these, and particularly, you know, sort of beyond this carbon question. Are you seeing then like a mindset shift with the companies you're working with, or what are you seeing kind of the broader impact of all of this legislation? Right. Yeah. Thanks, Heather. Yeah, uh, I I agree. There's certainly been a mind shift, and and people are very much aware that it's. Um, uh, it's a very important to be, uh, uh, yeah, taking part in the strategic level engagement with sustainability matters, uh, and um, that should not be underestimated. That's my view. Um, so, if we're looking, for example, to um, clients that have come up with questions on CSRD litigation issues, um, we know that ESG litigation risks are um, on the rise eh, for corporates. And, and we know they're facing the prospect of real monetary liability in the area. Also challenges to their businesses, models, uh, their governance structures. Um, and this may be a result of um, shareholder activism, which we may have seen, or claims by individuals or groups of communities that impacted by companies' activities. And we know that, of course, directors of those companies are particularly in the spotlight, um, with many of these claims crafted around the concept of their director duties. And so the evolving liability landscape is um, something that's certainly on the radar and we continue to advise our clients on what this means for, for their directors. And directors there should be taken in a broader scope. So this can also include officers or supervisory directors. Um, and I know, for example, for our US uh, clients, um, this is also very much a current um, thing on their radar. And there's a rise of ESG litigation risk there too. And, and the way this plays out for their directors. And I think there's a changing attitude towards their engagement of institutional shareholders. So there's been a change in landscape there too. Like I know in Europe, we have the directors coming into play. Um, and in the US, there's maybe less directors, less law, but more a practical demand for a changing landscape. And um, it moved really very much into the real world instead of something that's just being discussed. And uh, as part of the fiduciary duties, for example, of a director, there's been the duty of oversight, which is very much a, an actual uh, thing that's, for example, playing in Delaware, which is a, a state that's been often used as a um, uh, governing law of, of, a, of an agreement, for example. And um, the duty of oversight is, the, uh, is there to make sure that the companies comply with all the regulations. And this, of course, is becoming more prominent if we're looking to the ESG-driven litigation. So, Linda, let me pause you because something you said really resonated with me. And it's interesting because we've been having a lot of conversations with companies about double materiality and talking about their impacts, risks, and opportunities under CSRD. And I, I was trying to keep us not only CSRD today, so at least we started with some of this other legislation. But as you know, we were talking with Cecile, uh, a podcast or two ago, about the double materiality assessment and how a company is going to approach that engagement of stakeholders and others. But what's interesting is what you're bringing into this is the fact that, again, similar to people thinking about GHG reporting as just a number, you, what you're talking about <sighs> is that companies now will be disclosing this information that then can be used by all these different parties that potentially from a risk, you know, a litigation perspective or otherwise. So are you seeing companies are starting to integrate that into some of their thinking about 
how they are thinking about their CSRD reporting, or is that the next step companies need to to address? Yeah, um, I mean, I would say it would be great if they're addressing that right now. <laughs> yeah, um, very much so. So, for example, if you're in compliant with your disclosure requirements in abroad, you you know it will be advisable to also make sure that you cross check those against disclosure requirements that apply under CSRD. Maybe also looking to the future. Um, I think it's just really much the focus of your liability that's changing. So if you disclose facts that are not in line with what you're disclosing later, of course, there's a risk that an investor may come up and mm-hmm. you know, try to hold you liable for something. So this is very much a um, something that should be you know, on the radar for them. It's important because one of the things we've been talking about is importance across functional teams, including your, you know, legal counsel. But I think this just reemphasizes it is that there is that other lens you need to think about. And you also did mention uh, director liability and responsibility. And I think that landscape is also shifting. And one of the big questions we are getting under CSRD is how CSRD is impacting directors from a liability perspective as well as from a governance perspective, what they should be thinking about. And so again, do you have a point of view on some either best practices there, or at least a starting point for companies as they're working with their directors as part of the adoption of CSRD? Yeah. Yeah. Good question. I think the, um, if we're looking to the litigation part of the of the question, there's a lot of governance-based litigation, and I guess in the future there will also be a lot of contract-based litigation. So there's certainly, um, there should be attention there to what you're including in new contracts and also advice to recheck the current existing contracts. Um, and in general, claims you know under litigation will be on the rise if you're, um, for our directors, because of course they're the main source of liability, mm-hmm. and they're basically in the fire line. Um, and so it will be mostly governance-based litigation for now, um, on the basis of breach of director duties. So it's, it'll be very much a focus on what are they doing, uh, how are they documenting it, and also looking back when were they aware of something. So it's very much for them in their role as director or officer. Um, to make sure that they document things properly. And that's really where we provide guidance, of course. We were talking about, for example, the double materiality assessment and documentation. And it sounds like, if I understand you correctly, it is going to be important then for the um, officers of the company as well as the board and directors to understand maybe not every detailed decision, but the overall process and to make sure that they are comfortable that it was sufficient and it involved the right people and the right people from the company. And- I, I would say that's a, that's a fair conclusion. I think this also demands a, a larger involvement of or maybe expertise on the side of directors too. Yeah. So are you seeing then that directors are starting to focus at least on education and otherwise in this area? Or is this still people are a little behind the curve in terms of taking on this additional responsibility? Yeah, good point. Um, I think this is all very much going on right now. So even though people may engage sustainability directors, I think the role of directors themselves is changing and their education should also be up to speed to current developments. But I'm not sure whether they're really, you know, on that road yet. If I go back to what Niels was talking about and all of, you know, with carbon and then this other legislation you were talking about with what's required for 
for goods and uh, within the EU, there is a lot of places now that it would be possible either that you are in compliance, but there's a lot of extra costs the company's incurring, or maybe that you're not even in compliance and that you don't want the directors to just be standing on the side. Exactly. And I think one of the one of the striking things in the under the CSRD is that you also have to set yourself a goal to reach that net zero target at a certain stage. Um, I think a lot of companies have set that on the horizon somewhere. But but then uh, the CSRD also requires you to to explain how you get there. And I think a lot of companies are now in that phase and they start to realize that this is not uh, a free lunch. Right, you really need to do something to change that value chain or to 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 really reach that goal. And there, uh, obviously, the carrots and sticks of mm-hmm. uh, governments are relevant, uh, but but it also ties back to where is the plan and how do you execute it. And and I think that's where a lot of companies are struggling at the moment. So how do you make this real? Because you will need to start tomorrow with implementing it because you can't do it all at once. Yeah, we appreciate. There's a lot of things coming at companies right now but it's it's like neil said it's not simply just ticking the box this is something they really need to get going and i think it's also important to mention that um parties should also be aware of you know producing misleading or false statements of course and making a certain advertisings or advertising material that maybe portrays them as being up to speed on all these legislations or directives which in practice they're not so this is also something that um you know i wouldn't advise companies to do So one of the questions that we have gotten is that for non-EU companies, they may have different places in their organization where they could decide to report. So you have to figure out which companies are in the scope of CSRD, this specific to CSRD. And then you could say, well, I'm going to take advantage of some of the exemptions and maybe report at a you know, a higher level within the company. Or even we hear some companies talking about global consolidated reporting instead of just reporting for their EU subsidiaries or artificial consolidation. And as you are thinking about liability and director responsibility, ultimately, would the global directors still have responsibility, even if there is, you know, reporting separately in the EU because it's part of the company? Or do you think there could be a difference depending on your reporting. That's a fair point. Um, I think the, so under the directives that are, uh, for example, the CSRD and also the, the CSR, CSDDD that's coming around the corner and down the line that's being developed, I think it really focuses on the uh, obligation of the directors of the company that are aware of these facts. So it, I don't think it would necessarily mean that whether you're reporting on a higher level that anyone on the board of a lower subsidiary would be able to make a, a statement of non-compliancy and be free. You know, I think the reporting is very much a separate thing from where your liability lies. So yeah. I think the reporting, if you're consolidating your group and you decide to report on on the level of the, you know, the ultimate parent yeah. company, it doesn't mean as a director on the lower level that you're you have no responsibility. Yeah, because yeah. that, that responsibility applies to you no matter what. Right. So that's way more a focus on the um, being compliant with your obligations under the CSRD or the CSDDD. And it focuses on your behavior as a director and not so much on the other question, of course, is how do you report and how do you assess your double materiality questions? Um 
So I think for a director, it's very much yeah, focusing on introducing those sustainability elements into your business and doing that with a long-term view, looking at your entire value chain, all your providers, etc. I think uh, maybe you refer also to some of these structures that try to circumvent the mm-hmm. application of the CSRD. And I think uh, to the same extent uh, as Pillar 2, uh, it, it may save you a year or, or you may have a little advantage here or there, but overall it doesn't it doesn't really help and and the top entity in the eu will will definitely need to report so yeah by bifurcating groups or or sort of moving something underneath or or moving it out uh, you could give yourself a bit of breath but you see the big picture right so in the end uh it makes much more sense to sort of look at your structure and and make sure that uh, that you just operate sustainably that's a i think a better long-term a target than than just sort of uh, winning a year or right or of, you see where it's happening well, you say where it's heading right yeah right yeah the reporting question is really much a practical approach and you can like neil said ex- extend your your obligations for for a little while but the the fact is that you're you need to anchor those sustainability requirements into your company we have like a quote from the podcast and i think that is probably summarizes the entire message of this podcast that you really do need to anchor them let me though i'm still not quite done a few more questions because you mentioned um the cs triple d and that's one we've talked about a little but can you just remind people what that is as well as status right thanks um yeah so the european commission actually adopted the proposal for the directive on on core Corporate sustainability due diligence. So there's a lot of D's there, and yes. that's why people call it the CS Triple D. Um, and the adoption was made on um, Feb uh, 23rd Feb on sorry the 23rd of February 2022. So that's been a while. Um, it's it's been its um, current current status is that it's, it's subject to a trialogue discussion at, at European level. And the aim, of course, of this directive is to foster the sustainability and responsible corporate behavior. And to, like we said, anchor those human rights and environmental considerations into the company um, operations and your corporate governance in the wider perspective. Um, and those new rules of the CSDDD, those will ensure that businesses address um, the adverse impact of their actions uh, including in their value chains, and so inside and outside of Europe. So this also applies to non-EU entities, which often is assumed it doesn't apply, but it does. Yeah, I think that's the new trend in the EU that all their laws apply. Yeah, all the extraterritorial. Yes, exactly. Yeah, we, we learned that from the uh, from the US, right? Yeah. Well, I think you guys have like well surpassed us yeah, on, on yeah. that perspective. <laughs> yeah. So, and then is that in place now, or it's still being worked on? No, it's it's being worked on, um, and it's it's expected, I think, around twenty twenty six to apply. So it, it, we still have some time. But again, this is an additional source of liability, and it just you know it's just it changes the focus of liability. It doesn't really mean the the content of your liability has not changed. It just expands it really. Wow. So it's definitely a lot for companies to think about. We hit most of the main points. There's a lot of other things that are sort of top of mind from an EU perspective that maybe um, also non-EU companies should be thinking about. Starting to see a lot of clients asking questions around what directors really need to take into account, whether they're making decisions and how they should document it. And while previously the liabilities maybe felt a bit theoretical. So under the CS Triple D, 
um, of course, pending the implementation there, uh, we know there will be a director's duty of care. And um, that assumes a direct implementation of um, what you currently have in legislation that will be applicable uh, now and in the future. Uh, so what you can do now is check your existing contracts. And if you're working on new contracts, check, check issues uh, such as your uh, introduction of ESG KPIs, your continued improvements. Also um, check the uh, UN guiding principles and other policies. They may help you along the way. Uh, redefine maybe what nonconformity means in your contracts or your remedies. Look to your dispute resolution. Of course, there's the aspect of monitoring, the audit rights, um, your governance and your due diligence. Um, so I think those are really just practical handholds that we give our clients right now to make sure that they sort of feel a little bit more comfortable in the road to implementation of all these new directives. Yeah. And so it sounds like then the procurement is a key, another key party in all this conversation. But in some of these areas, people may have very long-term contracts. So then what do you, in, do you, is there a solution in that case? Or do you have to ask them to make their best efforts to work with you on some of this additional compliance information? Or Yeah, I think that really depends on the applicable governing law so for example the netherlands it will change uh, it may color uh, so we have the principles of reasonableness and fairness but that's all you know very much a theoretical question so that may color how you look at it, a contract but then again when the contract was um, agreed that's uh, pretty much the, um, the governing law and that's mm -hmm. at that moment the applicable provisions that apply if you're in a long-standing contract, you want to change something, it would be best to enter into a dialogue with your counterparty. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. And I guess your point is at least a good starting point is to stop future problems. And so at least if you're starting to incorporate some of this now, that's important. And then it also sounds like, because um, you've mentioned the with the directors, just even improving education for directors, making sure legal counsel is involved, procurement. And obviously we've talked a lot on the podcast um, about just the role of financial reporting. Otherwise there's like so many parties or you're not going to be able to comply with this. Right. Yeah. And I think now it's just very much um, when you're proving you want to focus on these important aspects in this, the changing landscape. I think that would, you know, make sure you, you are most well equipped or when the time comes when all of this is implemented. I think it's a key issue, right? These internal stakeholders and understanding who who's who's responsible, and especially the procurement department. If you are indeed importing, for example, large quantities mm -hmm. of steel, like we have quite a few uh, clients that, uh, for example, construct offshore wind farms, huge amount of steel going in, but you are ordering steel to be commissioned in 27, 28, then CBAM applies, right? Oh, so, yeah. so how do you deal with that? Because you're ordering steel now, so you need to get that onto the table in in when you're buying your steel now. And it may make a real difference if the steel comes from China or from the US, which primarily uses gas-fired mm -hmm. production facilities, which at the time will be much cheaper. So, uh, there, 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 there's a whole variety of stakeholders that you need to get together and inform and more and more we see that it's not just tax or legal or assurance or reporting mm -hmm. or finance but it's a much broader topic and depending on the exact uh, question uh, you need to assemble together and the larger the organization the sort of the bigger the challenge it seems because uh, there's so many stakeholders 
And it's difficult to find the data and the people that are really involved. Right. Well, and I think also to your point, and I think the steel is such a good example. If I'm a company that manufactures steel, then thinking about where I'm going to do that manufacturing is going to be make a huge difference in the future when you get to these points. But it's not like I can decide in 2027, oh, I'm going to move my steel manufacturing. Exactly. You need to really be making those decisions now. And that's just one example. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and, 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 and that you can expect the demand for uh, quote-unquote green steel is going to rise. Mm-hmm. But yeah, there's only so much capacity there. So if you want to change your supply chain, you better be the first one to start to negotiate this. Huh? Because if you would do that indeed in 2027, uh, the, the probably green steel sold out. Right? Yes. So, yes. so uh, as an example, but it also makes clear that moving now uh, makes sense and, and be ahead of the curve rather than... Uh, being the last one yeah Yeah. so are you guys seeing that companies are starting to focus more on this more i'll call it strategic aspect of the green deal or no people are so bogged down in all this compliance that it's only a few companies that are really looking at okay how can i maximize my opportunities here um I think from just a general perspective, the larger companies are focused on you know getting their their governance in, in compliance with the regulations. So they are they're they are wanting to move forward on that. Um, so they're they're considering necessary strategic and organizational changes to um, to make that business more sustainable. I think on those specific taxes and levies, I'm not sure. Yeah, I think I think where you see a lot of movement now is where CBAM really kicks in, yeah. huh? and 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 so where carbon pricing really gets evident, and and where the numbers are big, uh, companies are starting to move. Um, but again, huh, also for uh, uh, smaller producers and smaller companies, this this will become evident as as you go along. So, um, yeah, we see movement m- more with the sort of the. The, the, the sectors that are hardest hit at the yes, moment. Yes, yes. But yeah, if you look ahead a couple of years, you can see it sort of trickling down through the entire economy. And, and that's why the sort of the, the whole uh, hidden cost of carbon concept is so interesting because it will hit a lot of sectors and even sectors you would potentially not think of, like technology sectors, they, they tend to import a lot of uh, CBAM goods into Europe. So they are also investigating how much is it how can i avoid it uh, what what do we need to do about it yeah. uh, let alone the compliance itself right which is which which is a lot of work but sort of the pricing uh, now is also attracting a lot of attention yeah so you need really both pieces so then if, if i have a final question for both of you then is then i think you sort of said this but this is your final advice for companies if they like listen to this podcast and did one thing afterwards what what would be that one thing you'd want them to do Get up to speed with the reality of today. Another great quote there, Linda. You're very quotable. Good. The reality of today is such a good way to put it. And how about? Yeah. I'm not sure I can top that, Niels. Uh, but I, I, don't, I don't think I can beat that. But uh, I, I would, I would, I would definitely say, look at the hidden cost of carbon throughout your supply chain because that that will increase dramatically over over the years. And and you better start to act now because now there's opportunities, there's subsidies, there's uh, you're still a uh, 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 first mover. Yeah, you can turn what's a uh, huge risk into a huge opportunity. Yeah, yeah. If exactly. you move quickly. Yeah, and uh, obviously, had yeah, that that requires business case modeling and thinking about what you need to do. But uh, moving now makes sense. Yeah. All right. Well, Is that definitely a good one? moving now makes sense. <laughs> 
yeah. I don't know. She, Linda's hot too. But, but in any event, I definitely think that was a more positive note to end on. So that was a definitely a good, some good final remarks there. And this fascinating conversation, I feel like we could have five more of these and still not cover everything, but really appreciate you both joining me today. Thank you. Thank you. That's our show for today. Tune in next week for more fresh episodes so that you never miss any of our audio content. Follow the PwC Accounting Podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts. And to stay up to date on all our latest accounting and reporting news, sign up for our newsletter at viewpoint.pwc.com. From Thought Leadership at PwC, I'm Heather Horn. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast is brought to you by PwC, all rights reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates, and they sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.